I invite you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 18 in the Pew Bible, page 469. This will serve as our text. In fact, we're going to go into chapter 19, verse 3. Continuing our series of sermons on these uh, kings of Judah. Now, Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him, and induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? He answered him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, shall we go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes. And they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Canaanna, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. When he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And he answered, go up and triumph, they will be given into your hand. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd." And the Lord said, These have no master, let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? 
And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Canaanna, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded his captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For as soon as the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day. And the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset... He died. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asheroth out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. So far, our text. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from Psalm 107. The stanzas 5, 6, and 12. Holy and loved people of God. What an unusual and dramatic text we have before us. We are told the story of two rival kings who are now getting along like old friends, but who are nevertheless confronted by two different prophets. Then there's this altercation between the leader of the king's prophets and the lone prophet of the Lord ending with a slap on the face and imprisonment for the latter. There is the pomp and the pageantry of the two kings and their regalia, taking counsel together in the public square. 
And then there is the intrigue of the one king disguising himself to go into battle incognito. Then we have the problem of the, or then we have a random arrow striking in just the right place to put an end to one king's life. And over all of these dramatic events, we are showed a, a detailed vision of heaven in which the Lord commands the spirits to entice King Ahab to his death and to do so by means of lies and deception. A whole lot of action, a, a lot of events, a lot of questions come out of these events. What are we to make of it all? Is this a story meant to entertain us? Should we pop the popcorn and wait for the movie to come out? Well, of course not, because God didn't give the Bible to entertain us, but to instruct us. And this chapter reminds us that every king and every prophet throughout the history of Israel all play a role in God's larger story of redemption. God is always leading history to His end goal. So God certainly uses Jehoshaphat and Ahab and Micaiah and Jehu to teach us lessons, and He also uses them to make it clear that His plan of salvation, it marches on always. It marches on to victory. And so I bring you this word of the Lord. The Lord dismantles an unholy alliance. We'll take a look at the council of the kings and then the council of the king. Well, our text begins in verse 1 with a reminder and a new piece of information. It says there, now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. That's a reminder. And he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. That's new. And that's a rather startling piece of information, isn't it? I mean, he made a marriage alliance with the king of Israel. Prior to this time, Judah and Israel had been at war with each other. Ever since day one of the divided kingdom, they'd been fighting Rehoboam versus Jeroboam, Abijah versus Nadab, Asa versus Baasha, and Zimri and Omri. For over 60 years, there had been nothing but hostility between north and south, and all of a sudden now, Jehoshaphat and Ahab are getting along like a house on fire. The hatchet has apparently been buried and the proverbial bridge has been built, and so now the house of Ahab and the house of Jehoshaphat are, are joined at the hip in a marriage alliance. There is peace at last in Israel, all through the 12 tribes. Well, there's something about that that attracts us, isn't there? What's not to like about two hostile parties setting aside their differences and learning to get along? It's a victory for diplomacy, is it not? And yet, we don't easily ask this question, 
what does the Lord think about this? Certainly the Lord desires peace in Israel. He later will send, in history, He will later send the Messiah to be born, the Prince of Peace. He will send His own Son to die for peace. But is this the way of peace? Is Jehoshaphat's way of making peace the Lord's way? Is Jehoshaphat acting here in the spirit of Jesus? Let me ask that a different way. Would Jesus make an alliance with the devil? For that's who Ahab is serving, right? If you were able to read Ahab's backstory earlier this week as suggested, 1 Kings 18 and following, then you would know that King Ahab not only kept up with the false worship of Yahweh by means of the golden calves, you know, that had been the sin of Jeroboam and all the Israelite kings prior to Ahab in the north, but Ahab did more evil, we are told, he added to the wickedness the worship of the false god Baal. Ahab and his wife Jezebel were, in fact, rabid Baal worshipers, with Jezebel going out of her way to kill the Lord's prophets, the Lord's true prophets. Ahab, prior to our chapter, had been publicly opposed by God's prophet Elijah. He'd been called to repentance, but there was no repentance in Ahab. God had sent a drought for three years, and then after... That he used Elijah to bring about a great showdown on Mount Carmel to prove that Baal was nothing. Baal had no power. Baal didn't in fact exist to prove that Yahweh was the one true God. Remember how fire came down from heaven and consumed the whole sacrifice? Even then, neither Ahab nor Jezebel turned away from Baal worship. So, in short, Ahab was a thoroughly wicked king ruling over God's people in the north, and to make a marriage alliance with him was to make an alliance with Satan and to work against God. You see, Jehoshaphat, with this marriage alliance, was turning his back on the enmity that God had placed between God's people and Satan's people, between the offspring of the seed of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, going all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. The Lord had put that division there. He'd mandated that separation of those two opposing parties, but Jehoshaphat, in foolish disobedience, unites them again, in a wrong way, he unites them by having his son Jehoram marry Ahab's daughter Athaliah. He wanted to purchase peace by joining together with the evil side. Well, how about us, brothers and sisters? Do we take that enmity seriously. It's still there. 
Or do we sometimes act foolishly like Jehoshaphat and join together with those who hate the Lord? This isn't just an Old Testament thing. James, in his letter, chapter 4, is very blunt about what God wants from us. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's the antithesis. That's the enmity from Genesis still with us today. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand that. We certainly are called to spread the gospel to people, to all people. We are called to disciple the nations. And yet, when the gospel is rejected or the nations don't want to follow Christ, what are we called to do then? When we are faced with an Ahab in our life, what are we called to do? Well, very simply, we're called to keep ourselves separate. God put that division there for our good. Otherwise, we will be drawn into their sinful lifestyle. That's why before you date someone, make sure that they are united with you in the faith, in the Lord. Romance can never be a form of evangelism. The Lord denounces that. Before you become a business partner with someone, make sure you are united in Christ for to be bound together, contractually bound together with an unbeliever. That's undoing the very enmity which God put there for our protection. King Ahab is clearly a child of the devil. And King Jehoshaphat, though he is an upright child of God and determined to seek the Lord, we saw that in chapter 17, yet he has some sort of blind spot when it comes to Ahab. Though he knew Ahab's devotion to Baal, that was public knowledge, Jehoshaphat somehow naively thought that Ahab was his friend. But look now at verse 2 of our text. We read there that Ahab sets about to flatter Jehoshaphat when he comes to him in Samaria. He prepares an enormous feast. And then it says, verse 2, And he induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. You could translate there, he enticed him. It has negative connotations. There's trickery going on here. There's, there's flattery. Ahab is buttering up Jehoshaphat so that Jehoshaphat, and you remember he's got over a million soldiers at his command, so Jehoshaphat and his huge army can help Ahab take back a certain city, Ramoth-Gilead, on the other side of the Jordan, that once belonged to Ahab. There's trickery going on from Ahab to Jehoshaphat. And later on, Ahab will disguise himself to go into battle, leaving Jehoshaphat in his purple royal robe, sitting in his chariot like a sitting duck. Right? That would be like painting a giant bullseye on King Jehoshaphat, attracting all the attention, attracting the enemy to attack, to, to attack Jehoshaphat while Ahab hopes to blend in safely among the crowds of ordinary soldiers, Ahab was a conniving son. While Jehoshaphat comes across 
like he's naively in the dark. And yet, not totally in the dark. For by God's grace, Jehoshaphat has some good instincts still. He insists to Ahab that inquiry be made, or more literally, a seeking of the Lord take place first. That's in verse 4. And when Ahab calls his 400 uh, prophets together, and they quickly surround the throne and, and give a resounding message that, yes, those kings should go up, attack Ramoth-Gilead, for God will certainly give them the victory, Jehoshaphat is immediately wary. Jehoshaphat, down in his heart, he knows about Ahab. He knows Ahab's track record with the Baal worship and the golden calves. And so these 400 prophets don't really impress Jehoshaphat. He insists, let's seek the Lord through a known and trusted prophet of the Lord. Can you feel the tension in that? It's a, it's a bit of a farce on Jehoshaphat's part, isn't it? On the one hand, Jehoshaphat knows enough to know that Ahab and his prophets can't really be trusted. And on the other hand, he's fully committed himself to the war with Ahab, an alliance. I am as you are, he says in verse 3. My people as your people, we will be with you in the war. So on the one hand, Jehoshaphat knows that he should seek and follow the word of the Lord. But on the other hand, his mind is already made up. For even when he hears the very clear prophecy and the piercing word of the prophet Micaiah that victory will not come to the kings, that Ahab himself will be killed and all Israel will be scattered, does Jehoshaphat listen? Does Jehoshaphat then obey his God and break off the alliance with Ahab? No, he ignores God's word and he goes his own way anyway. And it nearly cost him his life, didn't it? Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord, it cannot be thwarted. The truth of what God pronounces, of what He commands, of God's decrees, they can never be foiled or frustrated. If you or I ignore God's word, we ignore it to our hurt, to our peril. As Jehoshaphat did, we we so easily can fool ourselves, right? We think our cause is good. We think our cause is noble. The cause of peace in Israel, noble cause. Noble to have the 12 tribes peacefully coexisting. We even ask someone, maybe, like Jehoshaphat did, to show us from God's Word whether this is the right or the wrong course of action. And then when someone comes along and opens the word with us in all sincerity and says, brother, sister, what you're doing here is not in accordance with God's word, we... We ignore it. We shove it to the side and we do what we wanted to do anyway. Beloved, remember... Our hearts, the heart, the human heart is deceitful, says Jeremiah, chapter 17. 
It's deceitful above all things. It's so easy to deceive ourselves, to think that we're in the right, to think that this is a good way, even when we're confronted by the Word of God directly. So please do this. I, I urge you, I plead with you. If a fellow Christian comes to you with the Bible in hand and in all sincerity of heart and says to you, my brother, my sister, what you're doing is wrong, then don't turn away from that person in disdain. Turn toward the Word of God in humility and submit to what God's Word says because the truth is God's Word will prevail also in your life. The truth will come down on you one way or the other. If you kick against it, you will only find yourself in the end broken and hurt, if not much worse. This thing called pride, arrogance, it lives in all of our hearts. It's, we're born with it. And how blinding it can be. Look at how these two kings are blinded by their own self-importance. The scene is set in verse 9. Both kings are sitting on their thrones in public at the gate of Samaria, arrayed in their royal robes, so it's meant to impress. It's a court of impression and grandeur. The 400 prophets of Ahab are surrounding them, and they're the same kind of prophets that Micah prophesied about 100 years later, the kind who cry out, peace, so long as they're well-fed. Never bite the hand that feeds you. If King Ahab wants to attack Gilead, we support victory to the king. So with the support of all these prophets and then the stateliness of the public royal court, all is coordinated there to make the council of the two kings a foregone conclusion. It's just a ceremony. It's just for show. Ahab was humoring Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was trying to assuage his conscience by waiting for word from one of God's true prophets. But these two powerful kings had already decided their course of action and nothing was going to stop them. Nothing except the higher counsel of the one true king of heaven. That comes out in the following scene as Micaiah approaches the throne, thrones of these two kings. The pressure on this single prophet must have been enormous, don't you think? King Ahab already doesn't like him. He thinks Micaiah has it in for him, so he's already against Micaiah. And then there's 400 prophets all singing the same song. Even the messenger who fetches Micaiah pressures him just to play along. And yet, whatever human pressure was coming to bear on this one man, Micaiah, he felt a much greater divine pressure, for he replies to the messenger, verse 13, as the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. That's the greater pressure for Micaiah. Is it the greater pressure for you and me? Do you ever feel compromise or pressure to compromise 
what you know God says in his word. Also in our day, in our context here in Canada, there's a great deal of pressure to play down what God says in his word about a whole range of subjects. Don't speak publicly about what scripture says, what God says about things like changing your gender or same-sex attraction or assisted dying or abortion. It's not cool to speak about that in public. People get upset when you mention these things and you tell them what God's Word says. When God's Word says that He has created people, male and female, and yet the male, the obvious male in front of you, insists that you call him by female pronouns, what then do you or I do? Do we compromise for the sake of peace? Or do you explain that while you have no desire to offend him, you are obligated to follow the word of God and treat males as males and females as females? I'll try to call you by your given name, but I cannot. I may not validate your erroneous, your deceptive thinking by calling you by your chosen pronouns. What my God says, that I will speak. So Micaiah enters the court, and at first he gives a, a sarcastic and mocking answer that aligns with the 400 prophets. We know that there's something sarcastic and mocking because Ahab recognizes it. He says, Micaiah, how many times do I have to tell you to swear by the Lord to tell me the truth? So him and Micaiah have gone around the mulberry bush a few times in the past. He recognizes the mockery in Micaiah's voice. And then when Ahab presses him, Instantly, Micaiah does speak the word of the Lord. He prophesies the death of Ahab in the forthcoming battle at Ramoth-Gilead, and he prophesies the scattering of Israel back to their homes in peace. Verse 16. Notice that last couple of words. Verse 16. The people will go home in peace. Ahab will die. The people will be home in peace. This is opposite world for kings. Normally, a people with its shepherd king looking out for them that's when they live in peace. But God will finally grant peace to the northern tribes by removing their godless king. Ahab is the cause of their lack of peace. And Micaiah the prophet does not stop there. He might have. He might have just kept silent. After all, the bottom line of the message doesn't change. Ahab will die in battle. Israel will return home in peace. But the Lord moves his prophet to, to set before Ahab and Jehoshaphat a description of the whole heavenly scene that led to that final message. And we're meant to take in that scene as well. Notice how that heavenly scene parallels the very scene unfolding at the gate of Samaria. Verses 18 and following. Micaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. 
So there you've got the two human kings sitting on their thrones in the gateway of Samaria with all their pomp, and they think they're all that. Micaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting in his throne room. And it's not pomp that he's got. It's glory through and through with all the hosts of heaven standing around. The two kings in Samaria thought they were in control, that they were calling the shots. But the one who calls the shots is the Lord who sits on his heavenly throne. And surrounding him are not 400 compromised prophets, but rather a countless number of the host of heaven who are mighty beings, spirits, ready to instantly carry out the will of the king. And what we're meant to take away from this heavenly scene, brothers and sisters, is the absolute assurance of who's in control, absolute assurance that God has total sovereignty over the whole world. Though earthly kings make their plans and they think they've got it all figured out, God is the one king whose plan always triumphs. And God's plan is always good, for God is working out the salvation of His chosen people and the coming of His kingdom on earth. And part of the king, coming of the kingdom on earth is the downfall of those who hate Him, those who are on Satan's side, the downfall of people like Ahab. They're going down. What we have from the throne of heaven is a clear judgment over Ahab. And at the same time, it's an indictment against the unholy alliance which Jehoshaphat undertook with Ahab. God is about to turn the tables on Ahab, and he's even going to use Ahab's own devices against him. And the prayer of Psalm 58, that the wicked would perish and the righteous would take joy in his downfall, that prayer of Psalm 58 is about to be answered. The Lord will use Ahab's own devices against him. Did you notice that? It starts with God's question in verse 19. Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? Who will entice Ahab? That's a synonym of that verb in verse 3 where Ahab was enticing Jehoshaphat into the battle. And think of how Ahab conducted his whole kingship. He, he operated with lies and deceit for 22 years. Think also of how he obtained Naboth's vineyard through the lies and false testimony arranged by Jezebel. I mean, Jezebel was arguably worse than Ahab, but Ahab let her get away with it. He supported her in her lies, so he shares the blame. And now the Lord was going to use Ahab's own methods against him. No one can outsmart or outmaneuver God. As David says in Psalm 18, verse 26, To the pure you show yourself pure, but to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. When a wicked man digs a pit 
for the righteous to fall into it, the Lord knows how to switch things around so that the wicked man falls into his own pit. That's the justice of God. Not that the Lord actually tempts Ahab to sin or even causes a certain spirit to engage in lies. The very fact that Micaiah reveals to Ahab all that went on in heaven shows that Ahab was clearly forewarned of God's plans, just like God had been calling Ahab to repentance through Elijah's ministry earlier. Here, too, Ahab has an opportunity to repent and pull back, but Ahab rejected God's warning, and he pushed forward with his own plans. And that spirit that becomes a lying spirit in the mouths of all of Ahab's prophets, that's clearly an evil spirit who comes up with this idea himself. Why is it an evil spirit? Well, we know from the book of Job that not just the good angels assembled before God and gave a report, but also Satan had to come there and give an account of himself to the Lord. This was all before the coming of Christ. If Satan had to come and give an account, so did the demons, the spirits, the fallen spirits. This is how in control God is. Satan and demons, they must obey the will of God. Just like we see in the ministry of Jesus who casts out demons and none can resist his authority. So this gathering of the heavenly host around the throne on this occasion would have included evil spirits. Well, evil spirits of their own accord always want to do wicked things, right? They always want to do evil and harm. That's their fallen nature, which they brought on themselves. They never want to do good things, only bad things. And when one of them volunteers to entice Ahab by way of lies, God grants him permission and sends him on his way. Well, is that not a comforting thing, brothers and sisters? Also for that prophet Micaiah, who for all of his faithfulness to the Lord gets thrown into prison and has to eat meager bread and drink plain water in small rations for his troubles. I mean, he suffered there in prison. But he knew that the Lord was in control and that the Lord ordained this and the Lord brought this about for a higher purpose. And any believer, any Christian who goes through hardships, difficulties, and experiences one bad thing after another, sometimes we have that. Some of us know about that. Understand this. It is not evil triumphing over you. Nor is it random acts undoing you. It is your good and gracious God permitting these hard things. Even sending them into your life all as part of his inscrutable plan to bring salvation to you and to all his people in the fullness of his kingdom. 
So trust him in your turmoil. Believe in your God in your bedlam. Keep depending on him in your time of distress and he will see you through. The Lord leads Ahab to his death as righteous punishment. And this breaks up the unholy alliance between him and Jehoshaphat, who himself escapes only by the skin of his teeth. Jehoshaphat then runs down to, runs back to Jerusalem, and the Lord sends a second prophet, Jehu. Jehu is the son of Hanani. Hanani is the prophet that confronted his father, Asa. So now we've got father and son, father and son. And Jehu confronts Jehoshaphat, 19 verse 2, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord. That summarizes the whole chapter 18, doesn't it? Jehoshaphat, you've been helping the wicked and you've loved those who hate the Lord. Because of this, wrath has gone out from you against you from the Lord. Jehoshaphat, you forgot the antithesis. You, you, you neglected the enmity. His sin was cozying up to the seed of the serpent, and that sin will have some devastating consequences for the next couple of generations, as the chapters in Chronicles will tell us. It almost wipes out the holy line of David. It brings God's promises to the brink of failure. That's where this sin of Jehoshaphat led. Joining in with the world's ways and the world's plans is disobedient and it's destructive at any time for any of God's people, but it is doubly so when a son of David, one who is a type of Christ, joins himself with the seed of the serpent. Yet the Lord in His mercy intervenes. He reestablishes enmity. The seed of the woman is protected. You know, by rights, Jehoshaphat should have died in that battle too, right? He also was in the midst of sinning against the Lord. But instead we read that when the Arameans, the Syrians, were pressing close to Jehoshaphat, 18 verse 22, he cried out and the Lord helped him. The Lord drew them away from him. God is never outflanked. Even when it looks like the end is upon us, a cry out to him for help can bring relief in unexpected ways. It's just as we'll sing from Psalm 107. Psalm 107 says it again and again, though God's people in their foolishness and rebellion, they brought God's wrath upon their heads, yet, here's the words we'll sing, they cried out to God to save them. He broke their shackles all, and liberty He gave them, the gloom He did dispel. Let them God's love adore. It's His love that keeps Him coming back to foolish, sinful, weak people like us, like Jehoshaphat. This is your God. 
This is the God you pray to. This is the God who watches over you. This is the God who keeps you day by day. He certainly judges and punishes and destroys those like Ahab who hate him. And that's to the relief of God's people. And he certainly disciplines us, foolish believers, when we stray. But the discipline, it leads to repentance. And repentance leads to us crying out to God for help. And help comes. Help will always come because of his grace to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the greater Jehoshaphat, who is the perfect Messiah, the well of grace is never dry because of Jesus. So go to that well of grace and keep going there until his kingdom comes. Amen.